Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. This morning, we will be reflecting on one of the most beautiful, shocking, important statements in the entire New Testament. This verse that's found in the prologue of John's Gospel, John 1.14. And it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this beautiful, enormous, important statement has always reminded me of one thing every time I read it, the ice cream truck. In particular, my best day encountering an ice cream truck. You see, when I was a kid, we were lazy. All of our friends, all summer long in the heat, we would just lay around on couches when we weren't playing basketball or basketball video games, but there was very little you could do that get us to do that we didn't want to do. But there was a sound that as it would come through the neighborhood would call us to action. And it was the sound of the ice cream truck, whatever creepy song they were playing, we would pop up and we would try to catch that ice cream truck. But the problem was is that the ice cream truck would always take different routes and it would never come right by our house. So we had to devise plans to get the ice cream truck, to get to the ice cream truck or get it to come to us. And we had all kinds of crazy schemes, including, you know, we would call our friend who was down the street and tell him to just take a really long time ordering. Or probably our best scheme was when the ice cream truck, we knew that it would come by the street that was near our house. And so we bought a bunch of cones and we diverted the road right about the time the ice cream truck was gonna to come to divert onto our street. We blocked off the street with the cones so that it would turn onto our street and the ice cream truck would be forced to come to our house. That day was not only a fun day because of the diversion there, and I think we got in trouble later, but we knew the menu. We loved the menu. We knew that there was a push pop, that there were lemon heads, that there was an ice cream sandwich but on that day, there was something glorious, something spectacular, something that blew our mind. It was the Chaco Taco. Now in my life, there were two very important things, chocolate and tacos. But I never could have imagined these two crazy things coming together. And as we sunk our teeth into that ice cream goodness, we realized that the bringing together of two things that we never would have expected has created a glorious moment that has taken us by surprise. And the, the verse that we're looking at today, John 1.14, is, is incredible because of the statement that it makes when it says, the word became flesh, the logos became sarks. Because it's making the statement that God became flesh. And to those of us who are familiar with Christianity, uh, that's not so shocking of a statement, but in that day, both to the Greek mind and to the Jewish mind of that day, for different reasons, God becoming flesh would have been unthinkable. But what we see here in the book of John, throughout the whole book, and in particular in this verse, is that the bringing together of those two things is beautiful, glorious, and life-changing. What this has historically been called, theologically, is the hypostatic union. 
that Jesus in his one person is fully God and fully man. Not 50-50. Not that he shows up in a mask or he's like the undercover boss or, or, or he's like a superhero who, who's just kind of pretending to be human, but completely human and completely God in the one person of Jesus. And this is mysterious. There's a lot of things that are difficult to wrap our head around, but rather than intending it to be a puzzle, John puts it forward as something we are to behold, something that we are to admire, something that should cause us utter wonder as we look into the complete uniqueness of Jesus. And so today, as we look at this verse, my, uh, the big idea that I'm gonna, I'm gonna be talking about is that in Jesus, we behold the grit of humanity and the glory of God. The grit of humanity and the glory of God. The fullness and realness and authenticity of a real human being and the beauty and majesty and sovereignty of a real true God. So let's start with the grit of humanity. This phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dean Fleming, a scholar whom I really admire, he says that this phrase right here, the word became flesh, logos became sarks, is one of the most shocking statements in the New Testament because of the, the, the Greek people that would have heard it in that day. Now, a few weeks ago, John, or, uh, Josh talked about that word logos. It's the, what we translate as word in, uh, in the book of John here. And how they had this, the Greeks had this concept that there was this logos, this impersonal, stabilizing uh, principle or force that brought order to the world. And John has been making this scandalous, beautiful argument that it's not this impersonal force. It's the real God, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. But he's going to ratchet up the scandal here when he says that, that word became flesh. The Greeks of the day couldn't, couldn't even imagine the high esteemed God becoming low flesh because of their worldview shaped by Plato in many ways. And it, it was shocking to them then. And most of us today would probably not have a difficult time affirming the theology that Jesus was fully human. We could sign off on that. But the implications for our life and, 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 and how radical of a statement that truly is, is hard for us to grasp, get our mind around. I mean, most of us, when we think about Jesus, our default mode is to think of him as something like a demigod, like a, like a superhero, like Thor or Superman, where he looks human, but he's really just this powerfully disguised uh, God who's not really fully human. But John, throughout the Gospel of John, as well as the other Gospel writers, they are very deliberate in showing a picture that, that Jesus is fully human. One of the ways that they do that is through the word choice here. John chooses the word sarks. He could have chosen some other words to, to speak about the humanity of Jesus. But this is a gritty, unsanitized word. It's an earthy word that, that conveys a fully embodied humanity. Now, when Paul's going to use this word in some of his epistles, it'll take on a, a negative connotation. Uh, but 
In this sense, it's just making the statement of, of the humanity of Jesus. He's sinless, but he is truly and fully human. It's the word flesh. You see, when I was in, 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 in Turkey, like even that word flesh has a weird connotation with us uh, now. When I was in Turkey, uh, I would go to some of the restaurants where they would have these tourist attractions, these tourist restaurants where they would translate the Turkish menu into English. And there was this delicious meal or this delicious food called doner, which is actually shaved uh, meat on, a, on a, like a spit. It like rotates and you shave the meat and it's, and it's delicious. But when you looked at the translated uh, menu, how they translated it into English, they called it sliced flesh. And there was something about just reading the word sliced flesh that was utterly disgusting. And, and, and it, this word sarks kind of can have that connotation like real earthy body flesh. Not, not any sort of sanitized version of it. And we see that John, in his gospel, he doesn't just mention once that Jesus became flesh, but all throughout his gospel, he's giving us little moments where he's showing and displaying the humanity of Jesus as well as the divinity of Jesus. In John 2, Jesus' first miracle, he's at a, a, a feast and he turns water into wine. Now, there's, there's tons of symbolic meaning behind that. There's, there's a lot of, of, of rich uh, ways in which he displays that he's God. But we also have to see that he is the human who's going to a party, to a well, wedding celebration. And then in John 4, we see this beautiful encounter with the Samaritan woman. And we tend to see Jesus as the one who's forgiving the sins of this, of, this, uh, of this woman and showing her the true encounter with God. But we also forget that Jesus is the human who's tired and thirsty at the well, in need, fully human. John 9, you see Jesus healing a blind man. And how he does it is he, is he spits and, and, and he spits and he rubs it on his eyes, makes some mud, and he rubs it on the man's eyes, and you, we tend to see the awe and wonder of a God who's healing, but we tend to forget that Jesus spit. Our Savior had saliva. He might have drooled on his pillow. He was really and fully human. He was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, and he was really bleeding and dying and in pain with his physical body, with his blood, with real plasma pouring out onto the ground around him as he died on the cross, utterly and fully human. He's the God who spoke the world into existence, but also probably had tilapia breath after a nice uh, feast of fish. He's the authoritative Lord. And everything belongs under his feet, but he's also the full human who had toenails. Our Savior, our King, had toenails. Now, every aspect of humanity was, was experienced by Jesus except for sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so what we see in Jesus is full, true, real humanity, yet without sin. That's the only aspect of the human experience that Jesus doesn't know. And because of that, he's able to empathize with us and, and sympathize with us, to know us in the midst of our brokenness and pain because he has experienced it. The, the embodied life of Jesus, the real humanity of Jesus, was so important to the early church and to the writers of the New Testament that it became actually a test as if of, of whether someone was a true believer or a message was, was truly the gospel. In 1 John 4.2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, there were ideas and thoughts and heresies of that time uh, which had a big view of Jesus, but it denied his humanity. It denied he came in the flesh. And John is saying, that is not from God. Now, why make such a big deal about that? Why make such a big deal out of the reality that Jesus had toenails and back hair and stomach acid and was a real human? Well, the reality is that in Western philosophy, in Western worldview, there is a massive influence of, of a guy named Plato. He said a lot of interesting things, a lot of helpful things, but he, he put forward some ideas of what, uh, of what life is about and what a human is about that seems to get embedded in all types of Western thought and pops up as different heresies throughout the ages. You see, uh, uh, Plato, uh, taught that the person is divided into mind, soul, and body. And that the mind and soul is what's really important. That's who you really are. But the body isn't important. And, and, and that the body is this temporary, limiting, animal-like thing that ultimately the desire is to be delivered from so that we could enter into the world of ideas, the really important things. And it downplayed the importance of the body. And ultimately, this pops up throughout the centuries as different types of heresies that just get rehashed over and over again that are influenced by this type of thinking. You had, you had Gnosticism, uh, this, this uh, quasi-Christian cultish uh, movement that would, would talk about how uh, uh, ultimately you're trying to be delivered from the body. Docetism, which was this idea that Jesus didn't really become a full human, but he appeared as a human. Or even uh, more modern or postmodern things like Kant's dualism, uh, saying that who you really are is your mind and, and your body, and those sorts of things are just instrumental or maybe even ornamental. But it's not really who you are. And the big problem is that this is inconsistent with a biblical worldview. It's inconsistent with the God who in the beginning looked out over his physical creation and declared it good. He created his image bearers, Adam and Eve, with a full body. He calls uh, them to steward and care for their bodies and to care for God's earth. And, call, and even when Jesus comes, he takes on flesh. When he's resurrected, he has a body. And when he resurrects us, we have a body. 
And then he doesn't just wipe out and destroy the world, but he actually renews this physical creation in, in Revelation where it talks about Jesus making all things new. And so, so often we have this philosophy of Plato that sits underneath our theology that makes us to minimize the real important things of the body and of the physical world. And it was so important that John and the other apostles and the early church had to name it for what it was, a heresy. And so if you find yourself saying things like, well, only the spiritual stuff matters. Let's not get mixed up in, in things out in society and things out in the world. And It's really just about me and Jesus. It's just about the spiritual things. The spiritual things are very important, but so are the physical things. And if you're saying phrases like that, you might actually be more influenced by Plato than a biblical world view. But... The body of Jesus, the real humanity of Jesus, it's not just a concept. It comes to bear in our real life. It means something. If we devalue or, or uh, de-emphasize the humanity of Jesus, it will affect the way that we live. So I want you to take a moment and uh, turn to some people around you or write in your journal uh, and, and, and reflect on this question. What happens when we downplay or minimize the humanity of Jesus? How does that affect our life? What happens when we downplay the humanity of Jesus? Go ahead and discuss. So I would be very curious to know how you answered that question. I imagine that many of you uh, identified the fact that uh, without Jesus' humanity, we, we lose the, the empathy and the sympathy that God has for us in our, in our human experience. 
I imagine some of you rightly, knowing that all of life is all for Jesus, uh, recognize that if we downplay the humanity of Jesus, we downplay the goodness of work in, the, in this world. I, I imagine that some of you said, if we downplay the importance of the body in Jesus and in, in, the, in the Bible, then we're going to downplay the importance of stewarding our health. I know that I have been guilty of that. I've, I've been a functionally a disciple of Plato sometimes when I sit at my desk for like 10 hours and just study something and move no aspect of my body except for my hands and my eyes. Um, but what I really want to focus on, there are many ways we could go in this, but I want to take sort of a pastoral moment and talk about the importance of embodied relationships, that we have relationships with one another and that that have the reality of, of, of human bodies and human presence with one another. Jesus could have related to us in many ways. He could have sent a signal in the sky or he could have sent an angel, but Jesus chose to relate to us and to commune with us through a physical human body. And you might be thinking, well, he doesn't show up to me that way. I've never seen the physical eyes and, and the hands of Jesus. But in the New Testament, the early church picked up this metaphor of the, the church as the body of Christ. The, the, the real physical presence of the body, of, of, of the church, of the body of Christ, shows up to us through the presence of the bodies of those who are followers of Christ. And we have just experienced five months where so much of society has been saying social distancing, be distant from one another. And it has played a role in really helping to keep people safe. But there, I think if we can take anything from this experience, most of us would say that we've, the thing that we've missed the most is the, the, the physical presence of other people. And it's been important, it's been a good temporary thing and may need to continue as a temporary thing, but let's make sure that we know that this is a temporary thing rather than the normal pattern of life. And that if we are going to, to, to take some degree of risk, that risk might, might be, as we're making priorities of how we uh, figure out what we do in the world, is to get together with some believers, have, have at least a bubble of people that you have in your life that you can be with physically in their presence, to pray together, to, to process the big questions of the world, to, to follow Jesus together. I mean, because the reality is 80 to nine, 85 to 90 percent of our nonverbal communication, and our communication is nonverbal. It comes through facial expressions and tone of voice and posture and the presence of real tears. And when we're not together, when we don't at least have a couple of believers to be with, then it can cause some, some disruptions in our life. One is it can grow fear. There was a study that, that talked about the physiological effects of being alone and how uh, just the presence of another human, another person, actually reduced those physiological effects. And so they studied it. The person didn't have to speak the same language. You didn't even have to know them. And we all have this experience. Like if you walk through a forest by yourself, you're utterly terrified. But one other person just reduces the fear of that. So to have one or two people, to have some people around that you're seeing in this time uh, can, can help reduce the fear as you walk together. 
Also, it might, we might be losing empathy. I mean, I do think that there's been a, uh, a void of empathy over these last five months. Uh, and the reality is, is I talked to this neuroscientist, uh, uh, Kurt Thompson, and he talked to me about these uh, mirror neurons, how neuroscience is showing the importance of embodied relationship in that uh, there, there's a neurological mirroring whenever you are in someone's presence, that the things that they do and the way that they act, that your mind, your neurological activity begins to actually mirror theirs. And, and, and they say that it could have some role in empathy. But also there's a suspicion that happens. What, uh, someone I really respect, the pastor Eric Mason, he says, proximity breeds empathy, but distance breeds suspicion. And in society right now, if, if there has ever been a time where people are suspicious of one another, suspicious of their motives, it's right now because of the lack of proximity. Now, all along what we've encouraged people is to, to while we, it's been important for us to shut down our largest gatherings, we still need to have some points of contact where we are connecting with other human beings in as much bodily form as possible. And it's not always possible to be physically in each other's presence, but, but there's a way to, uh, to have a bias towards more of the human. Maybe, maybe rather than an email, especially a critical email, try a phone call where you can hear the tone of voice. Rather than a phone call, maybe do a Zoom call where you could see facial expression. And maybe consider having uh, some, a bubble where there's other believers, other people to walk with you and show up. Now, now uh, even, for, even if for now you're in a situation where you're with someone who's immunocompromised or that's you yourself and we say you need to lock it down, I would encourage you to let this season uh, know that you are, you, are, you are doing something good and you are caring for someone, but let this season remind you of the goodness of being in someone's presence. Persevere and be sure to make this a temporary thing. Now, it's uh, really important that you know what I'm not saying and what I am saying. I'm not saying stop social distancing and go hit the club. That's why we had this big spike in Arizona this summer. Uh, don't do that. Also, what I'm not saying is that you should feel bad for quarantining and having a, uh, uh, if you're in high risk and that you're kind of locking things down. No, we're all navigating this. We don't know how to navigate it perfectly. We're trying to, to navigate it as each person in our particular situation. But what I am saying is to, even if you have to delay for a time in-person contact and in-person fellowship, uh, don't devalue it. And I think it's especially important in the midst of the season that we are in because of so many uh, huge things that are going on. We need other people to walk with us. Um, Jake uh, Slobodnik, th this week and the last, the last couple weeks, I've asked him to put together uh, some, some questions, some, some, some like uh, uh, a little document that lays out some questions that we can use with conversation and helping each other process through things. He has one that's about emotions and processing our emotions and how, how we can pray the Psalms together. And another one that he is uh, put together is, is focused on uh, processing cultural events. Trust me, in the next couple months, there are going to be so many big cultural events that happen 
that we're going to have this temptation to, to process them all on social media and make these big proclamations. Or you're going to have the temptation to just say that the church needs to, to, have, uh, to, to talk about every single one of these things, either at a first Wednesday or on a Sunday, and there's just no way we would be able to do that. But it's also not the most fruitful way to do it. The more fruitful way would be if we could get uh, groups of believers together processing deeply these cultural events, asking deep questions and working through it together, praying together, lamenting together. We, we have, uh, Jake is putting together these questions and they hit on things like, uh, um, things like what action needs to be taken? What don't you understand? What are the cultural influence that might, that might be deceiving you? Uh, how should you pray? And so I really want to encourage you to not just like let the craziness of the times wash over you or to make your proclamations over Facebook and feel like you've done something, but actually dig deep into whatever the issue is, really pray and really act with a group of believers. And so I want to encourage us in whatever way it looks like, and it's going to look differently from each of us, to have a bias toward embodied relationships as we follow Christ, the true human who came near to us in the fullness of the body. So not only do we see the grit of Jesus' humanity, we see in Jesus the glory of God. We see the divinity, the reality of God in Jesus. Now, John 1, this prologue to the book of John, it, it says it both explicitly and implicitly. It's explicit when, it, when, it, when you look at John 1, 1 through 3, he, the way he starts, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the, and the Word was God. Um, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He explicitly says, he's God. And in case you were wondering, he's the one who created all things. But it's also implicit in the passage that we're looking at today when it says that not only did the word become, become flesh, but it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word dwelt among us literally means he like set up his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And this would probably bring to mind uh, Exodus uh, 33, where, where, uh, where Moses is encountering God in the tent of meeting and encountering uh, the glory and the presence of God. In the, this tent of meeting and the, and the tabernacle in the, the Old Testament uh, was the physical way that God showed up in, and brought his presence to, a, to his people, to the community. And Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the way that God is setting up his tent among us. It's not just that the human Jesus came and moved into our neighborhood, but God set up his tent among us. The presence of God can be encountered as we encounter Jesus. And it says that in encountering Jesus, we encounter the glory, the glory of God, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. 
Glory, this word glory is used more time in, in John's Gospels than the Synoptic Gospels. And it's, it's a big emphasis of John, and it's carrying the connotation of the Old Testament idea of glory. This word kavod, which means like weightiness and substance. Gerhard van Rad uh, defines glory as the impressiveness that demands recognition. The truly amazing things about God that when you set your eyes on it, you must recognize it and worship. Josh Butler actually has a great definition. He says the glory of God is the emanation of God's beauty and character. It's when God's character goes public and is made visible. And John is saying here that as we encounter Jesus, it's an even uh, more profound and greater thing than Moses stepping into the tent of meeting and that we encounter the glory of God in the glory of Jesus. And, and what better definition of glory, better than any theologian, is the life of Jesus played out in the Gospels that John is going to sketch. He's going to show that the very things that God does, Jesus does. God forgives sin. Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive sin. God is the creator. Jesus is the creator. God is the, the healer. Jesus is the healer. God is the one who has power over life and death. Jesus has power over life and death in, in his resurrection and in him raising Lazarus from the dead. And one of the ways that John really makes the case for the, the deity of Jesus is that it's these seven I am statements. These seven I am statements that actually uh, provide the structure for the book of John in many ways, where he will make this statement where he says, I am, and then he'll fill in the blank. And that word I am has the connotation of God's name in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's a very bold proclamation where he is, he is making the statement that he is God, and he uses all of these uh, metaphors and analogies to describe who he is as the God in the flesh. Let me walk through those real quick. First of all, he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the very one who sustains our life. He's the feast for our souls and for our bodies and for every aspect of our life. In, in, in John 8, we see him say that I am the light of the world. To those of us who are lost in the darkness, Jesus is the light. He says that I am the door for the sheep. To wandering, lost sinners who are like sheep who cannot find our way home, Jesus is the door. He's the one who protects us and who keeps us in and the one through whom we enter. He's the resurrection and the life he talks about in John 11. After uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, showing that he is the one who has the authority to, to bring life, not just a good teacher, the one who stares death in the face and says, you are done. Resurrection is here. Life is here. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is committed to caring for his wandering flock and leading them uh, to the presence of God and the restored creation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the source of all truth. He's the source of all life. There is no way to God except through Jesus because he is God 
in the flesh. And then he says, I am the true vine in John 15, giving this image of, of the grapevine, that he is the vine from whom we draw our life. And apart from him, we cannot do anything. And apart from him, all we experience is death. Jesus is making very clear that he's not just the God who has toenails, but he is the God who, who is sovereign and holy and good and powerful and able to forgive sin and can actually do something in the world about the brokenness. And so I want you to reflect with those around you. Just ask this question, what happens when we downplay the divinity of Jesus? What happens when we downplay the reality that Jesus is God? How does that affect our life? So go ahead and discuss that and we'll come back in just a moment. So what happens when we downplay the reality that Jesus is God? Now, for most of us in the church, probably not everybody, but for most of us, uh, we would easily affirm the theological statement that Jesus is God. But I think because of some of the cultural momentums right now, uh, there's a, a sense in which we're downplaying the reality that Jesus is God and really kind of elevating Jesus as the human and, and when we do that, we end up with a powerless Jesus, or a, a, at least a Jesus with reduced power. Um, we end up with the Jesus is my homeboy uh, Jesus. We know that there are those shirts out that say Jesus is my homeboy, and he's got the thumbs up there. And, and you end up with one that you like, he's got nice teaching, he's a good advisor, 
but he ends up being less of a savior and more of an advisor. And as that happens, we begin to lose a sense of awe and wonder. And then that tends to become a dry, cynical, hopeless view at the world uh, where we can kind of just judge everyone, deconstruct everything, uh, but not really turn the mirror on ourselves. And part of that becomes, uh, comes from the fact that as we turn down the, the, the importance of Jesus as God, you have to make up for it, and we end up turning up the importance of ourselves. We stop seeing Jesus as the Savior, and so we start trying to make ourselves the Savior of the world. We start, stop seeing Jesus as the judge, the one who will ultimately judge the wrongs and the sins. So we make ourselves to be the judge of the world. And as we deflate Jesus, we inflate ourselves. And there's no life in that. If, if you're living in that space, you know that there's not a lot of awe. There's not a lot of wonder. You're worn out from trying to be the savior of the world. And deep down, you know that you are an ins insufficient God. Deep down, we know that there are certain things in us and in the world that, that we need someone bigger than us to deal with. We know that we are actually pretty jacked up and we have sin. And if someone really saw the sin that's in there, we need someone, we need God to come in and forgive us and to die for us and to reconcile us to himself. We need to be truly known and truly loved. And only the God of the Bible can truly know us, to know how really messed up we are, and yet truly love us. He sees us as the sinners that we are, but he also makes us his children through his life, death, and his resurrection. And we know, even though we try to stifle it, that there's a reality of death that we don't know how to deal with. We feel it in the pain in our knees and in news in the world and that someone bigger than us needs to step in and bring life where there is death and we are insufficient to do it, but Jesus is sufficient. And so over these next months, as we're in the book of John and you're reading the book of John, behold the Jesus who is fully human but fully God and totally sufficient to deal with our sin, to deal with Satan, to deal with death, the big things that we cannot handle. And as we look at him and behold him, we see something beautiful. And it causes us to worship, to fall on our faces and worship. Jesus isn't just your homeboy. Jesus is the world-creating, life-sustaining, sin-crushing, death-defeating God who has moved into the neighborhood to reconcile you from all of the brokenness of sin, Satan, and death. And he is good. And he is beautiful. And so what do we do? We behold. The word here, when, when John talks about that, that we have seen Jesus' glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, it's a potent word. It's, it's probably better translated as behold which means to look at with wonder and affection and, and a fixed gaze. Behold Jesus, our God, who can rescue us. And so let's take a step back. Let's close with this. Jesus is the one who shows us the full grit of humanity, 
and the full glory of God. Nobody in history, whether it's in popular culture, academia, or a historic figure, a general, a political leader, none of, nobody is un unique and like Jesus like this, fully God and fully man. And all of the people that we put some stock in, they just keep letting us down one by one by one. But Jesus won't. He is someone whom, unlike anyone else we have ever encountered, the fullness of humanity and the, uh, and the fullness of God. And so I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you that it is not about us going off and finding God on some mountain or chasing God down. Well, when John lands on this phrase, full of grace and truth, it's, it has this echo of the Old Testament, love, God's loving kindness and his faithfulness. These are not opposite terms, but they're terms that actually amplify each other. And, and, and the grace speaks of the unmerited favor that God brings towards us, the gift that he brings towards us, that he makes us his children, not by our works, but by his grace. And that, that the truth actually in this context means like faithfulness or trustworthiness or reliability. So it's not just a gift that is good. It is reliable and trustworthy. In other words, I talked about in the beginning of this sermon, not in the beginning of the world, but in the beginning of the sermon, when, when I talked about how we used to try to chase down the goodness of the ice cream truck. We just wanted to get the ice cream truck to come to us. So we had to do all of these things to trick the ice cream truck to come to our street. The gospel is quite different. It says that this beautiful God, this perfect human, in the incarnation, comes and moves towards us and sets his tent up among us. By his grace, he moves towards us rather than us having to chase down the ice cream truck. And Jesus, in Jesus, God is driving the ice cream truck up to your front door. And he's offering us something better than the Choco Taco. He's offering us Jesus, the one who shows us the true grit of humanity and lived a perfect human life. And he shows us the glory of God, the perfectly divine God that we come to and worship. So let's take some time and let's worship that Jesus right now. Father, I pray for our church and I pray for us in this moment. I pray that you uh, would encounter us, that we would worship you, that we, as we, uh, as we feast together in our homes, as we uh, gather together in our homes or, or wherever we're at, that we would encounter you in the fullness of, you, of who you are, the God who shows us the glory of the Father, who's full of grace and truth. God, increase our hunger for you and help us to see that you are fully human and fully God and worship you accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.